Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Ross Grant. Before I start, I wonder if I could just uh, ask you to bow your heads again. Father in Lord, Father Lord, we just thank you so much for uh, the privilege of being able to be here this morning to worship together. And Lord, we know that where two or three are gathered, there are you among us. And we just thank you for that and ask that your presence would be here this morning. That Lord, that the words that I speak would be those that will bring glory to your name in Christ's name. Amen. Just a little bit of background for me before I start. I know some of you know me and I know a number of you here, but uh, I'm, uh, I work at the Sydney Adventist Hospital. Uh, my work there is as head of one of our research centres and uh, it's the Australasian Research Institute, but it's also uh, a primary centre for uh, the lifestyle medicine and research activity. A little bit of what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you a little bit of science. Is that okay? It's good to do science. I remember as a 13-year-old sitting there in church and thinking, you know, I wanted to be a scientist from about the age of 12. Now, I'm a clinical biochemist, biochemical pharmacologist, so there's a lot of applied stuff through into the medical arena, but uh, I wanted to be a scientist from about the age of 13, and I thought that God probably knew quite a bit about theology. I'm sure he knew a lot about the Bible and about being religious, but I suspected he didn't know that much about science. It looks so sad, that's just the way I thought. And of course, what I realise now, and particularly now, is recognising the incredible integrated complexity that makes up you and I. And yes, I've gone through quite a few ups and downs in terms of uh, does the God of the Bible actually exist? And I am extremely confident that we can be very confident in the God of the Bible. But I want to show you a little bit of science today, and we're going to tie it in a bit to uh, the theology so the question this morning is, can we live forever? And I know that as those who are, uh, take the, the Bible seriously, you would go, yeah, of course we can. Let me just take you through in a little bit of background. Um, can you tell me, is it okay if I do some teaching? I'm a better teacher than I am a preacher. So let me ask you then a question. What do every adult in that, uh, that's uh, from 1930, that's Manly Beach, 1930, uh, can you tell me what every one of those people have in common, the adults in that, uh, in that picture? They all have it in common. Of course, they're all at Manly Beach. That's the first thing. But outside of that? Cozies. They're all wearing cozies. I guess most of them are, and particularly in that era, they would be. Um, that is true. That's not the one I'm looking for. Oh, Umbrellas. Yeah, a lot of them have umbrellas, but a lot of them don't. Now, you've got to think, every adult in that has one thing in common. Yeah, they love the beach. Well, they're there. Some of them might be there under duress. What was that one? No sunscreen. Well, that's a good one. Uh, no, it would be highly unlikely they would have sunscreen, although they might have got some uh, home remedies put on there. Look, I'll put you out of your misery. There is one thing that all of them have in common. Every adult in that picture now is dead. 
Now, 1930 is 90 years ago. And uh, while it would be possible, we'll look at the length of age and that sort of thing, I think I'd be fairly confident to say that pretty much every adult there will be dead. And I know that this takes a little bit of a sombre tip because that's unfortunately where all of us are going regardless of everything that they've enjoyed there on that day. The same sort of thing for us. A couple of things. It is possible to provide security against other ills, but as far as death is concerned, we men live in a city without walls. That was Epicurus. Does anybody know what Epicurus was famous for? Obviously ancient Greek. Epicurean. Food, well, basically enjoying themselves, and food was one part of it. So he recognised that even though he would enjoy himself, and that was basically the basics of, of uh, the Epicurean philosophy, basically death was going to come to everybody. Men fear death as children fear to go into the dark, and as the natural fear in children is increased by tales, so is the other. That was Francis Bacon. Someone has somewhere commented on the fact that millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. I thought I would just put that in there. And it is true. If we have a look at, uh, and then we have Solomon. And this is really the foundation of today's talk. Death is the destiny of every man. The living should take it to heart. Now, I live, work in a hospital, and sadly, death is a part of the everyday occurrence. Well, almost every day in any case, a common one. But most of society doesn't want to talk about death. Most of society wants to entertain you. Most of what we're being given is something to distract you from the very real reality that there is an end, and an end for all of us. If you have a look at the average life expectancy, it looks pretty good. We're going up fairly well. We're up around about, uh, I think it's about 86 or 87 for women and around about 82 or 83 for men, depending on the country you come from. But it has gone up. A couple of dips there, and of course that's the two world wars. It's the average age that's going up. So we're doing pretty well. If uh, you look at the maximum age, does anybody know how old the oldest person, at least that's been reliably recorded, does anybody know the maximum age so far in recent history? A bit older than 117? 122, that's right. That's, uh, do you know her name? Okay, yeah, well that's right. It is 122, and it's a lady by the name of Jean Clement. She, interesting story, I just like to say it. She died in 1997. But Jean Clement was a, uh, she lived in Paris and she had a little unit in Paris in the city itself. And just as an aside, there was a barrister who lived in the same city and thought, look, I've got to give this lady a pretty good deal and it'll work out well for both of us. She was in her 80s at the time, so he figured she probably has another five, ten years at most to live. And so he said, well, look, I will pay you a yearly stipend, like a pretty good wage for a year, if when you die, the deed of your house goes to me. And so she thought, well, that was a good thing. He thought that was a good thing because if he'd actually been paying her and it was a pretty good wage, I don't know what it was at the time, but anyway, she could live comfortably on it. He thought that if that only went out for 10 years, he would be way ahead in terms of the cost of the property. She thought it was great because she had nothing to worry about. Anyway, she turned out to be the oldest living person in history. 
in modern history, and so of course he died long before she did, and his estate was still paying her, her yearly stipend at the end. Now there are people that have extrapolated this out, and they've said, well okay, if we're living to, you know, around about our mid-80s now, and we extrapolate that out past not taking into consideration these what might be considered aberrations, but extrapolate that out for another 300 years or so, we might be living by 2300, we might be living to 155. Now, this is where, and I should say something about the sort of research that we do. Some of that research, what we, what we look at, and we're particularly interested in degenerative changes, particularly in the brain and the central nervous system, but there are some parts of our work that have been uh, very much applicable to the uh, group, or at least there's, there's quite a, a group of scientists around the world in the anti-aging area. And so part of some of the work that we do is applicable to that, though we don't consider ourselves anti-aging researchers. But um, there are certainly people out there who think that you can actually live forever and that science can take you past that. Now, I won't go into too much detail, but I don't think it's going to be possible for us to improve an awful lot. So man's solution to the death problem. What are the prospects for human biological immortality? And when you think about it, that's pretty much the only hope that people have. Can we all think of some good things that science has done for us? I mean, it certainly improved our health, uh, well, at least in terms of our medicine, uh, our surgical and medical practices. I mean, we actually do a lot better than what we did previously. All the antibiotics, things like that. So there's a lot that medical science does and does really well. And so a lot of people put a lot of faith in the technology. Technological immortality, biological machines, swallowing the doctor. This is what people are looking for. Mind to computer uploading. Now, is it possible? I could go on with some detail here. Could you actually upload your whole mind into a computer, some sort of an algorithm, so that then later on, maybe even just with another body, you could kind of download it, and so you would have, yeah, another body, but you would have your brain there. Lots of reasons why that won't work, but certainly some people are seriously looking at it. Cybernetics, connecting yourself up with uh, machines, so you're kind of part man, part woman, and the, part man, part machine, sorry. Um, modern slip of the tongue. Um, all right, cryonics. I'm going to talk a little bit more about cryonics. Does anybody know what cryonics actually is? Yeah, where you freeze yourself. And basically, if you put yourself into what they call suspended animation, we'll have a look at that in a little bit more detail. And then you've got these things like life-extending substances. And uh, there are a number of pills that you can get out there and buy now that are supposed to be able to increase your health, but potentially also your longevity. This is just one of the uh, researchers in this area. If information and technologies continue to improve exponentially, a scientific revolution will indeed occur. We may then be able to rewrite and upgrade the software to avoid death. So they think that potentially we can avoid death. And wouldn't that be the absolute holy grail for people who don't believe in God, who don't believe in religion, but that's a, that's a major hope. Get the word out. Educate people that curing aging is not science fiction. It's science foreseeable. This is a guy called Aubrey de Grey. It's going to happen, and the sooner it happens, the better. Getting the word out there is really what it's all about. Now, Aubrey de Grey inherited some money from his mum, a few million dollars, 
And he set up a centre, which is called the Sen Centre, which is investigating the potential for being able to get you to live forever. Now, Avery's been doing that for a little while, and I've watched that he, in fact, is ageing himself. So uh, I'm not sure that he's going to be particularly successful. But certainly he's out there believing it, and there are a lot of people who are putting more and more faith into it. 50 years frozen, the first cryonically preserved humans Disturbing journey to immortality. Let me just read you a little bit. So Dr. James Hiram Bedford, a former University of California Berkeley psychology professor, died of cancer back in January 12, 1967, so quite a while ago. Bedford was the first human to be cryonically preserved, that is, frozen and stored indefinitely in the hopes that technology to revive him will one day exist. So he died of cancer, he died of a natural cause, and what happened is that they then used cryonics to freeze him. Now, it's in liquid nitrogen. I'll explain a little bit about it shortly. But liquid nitrogen, do you know how much, how low a temperature that is? It's actually minus 198 degrees centigrade. It's a very, very low temperature. Now, we have actually a, uh, a really big, looks like a vat, uh, which is, does cryonically preserve. We have liquid nitrogen in there and we actually put tissue specimens in there that we want to work in a little bit later on. And yes, it's down at minus 198 degrees centigrade. And we do actually freeze cells. We might grow some brain cells. We might grow some skin cells. We grow them as a monolayer. And then if we want to keep those cells to look at a little bit later on, we can actually prepare them especially we take all the water out of them and we put, uh, well, almost all the water, but we put uh, some other things on them, DMSO, and then we put them into, uh, freeze them down at a slower temperature and then pop them in the freezer. And we can actually get those up and, and resurrect them again afterwards. But we can only get at our very best probably about 85 to 90% of the cells that we freeze. Now, they're just single cells. If you're putting a whole human in, with tissue density of varying types, from muscles to bones to, to brain, all different types of density, you've got to be able to get rid of all of the moisture out of that, or at least large amounts, so it doesn't crystallise. Once you freeze that moisture, remember, water expands when it freezes, and what would it do to all your cells? Pops. If you put uh, veggies in the freezer, what happens to them? You know, if you put a pumpkin in the freezer, and then you take it out, it's going to be all mushy, isn't it? Because it breaks open the cells because the water froze and broke those cells. It'll do exactly the same to you. So they do actually prepare them, although in 1967 it wasn't quite as good as what they're doing now. They do prepare them, they do actually inject into them uh, a thing like antifreeze, but like you put in your, uh, the radiator of your car. They inject that into all of the veins, fill it up, and hopefully that gets rid of most of the water and then they start to slowly cool the body down. And this is a dead body. Anyway, there's lots of reasons why it won't work. I hope somebody will ask me some questions afterwards. But uh, unfortunately, um, well, let me just tell you beforehand, uh, well, there were 300 so far that have been cryopreserved and there's over 3,000 people that are... Um, uh, looking to have themselves cryopreserved in the hope that it will be able to resurrect sometime later in the future. Some people are only having their heads done, 
because they're finding that uh, they don't have the money to spend to get the, the rest of their body done. So they're thinking, well, let's put my head in there and hopefully then it'll be able to be preserved or at least somebody will be able to resurrect it somewhere in the future. In order to keep your body cold, or at least in the frozen state, your estate, whatever it might be, has to be able to keep paying money every year and it's not inexpensive. So uh, these companies that preserve them, it actually costs quite a bit, costs us quite a bit just to keep a vat of, of uh, liquid nitrogen there for a year. So if for some reason somewhere down the track, you know, 100 years later you find that your estate has run out of money, unfortunately you just uh, end up thawing and off you go. I'm not sure what they do, what the ethics are with that, but unfortunately it might not, uh, not, might not be good for you. The sad thing is, is that they also, and I'll just tell you a little story here too, they, um, they brought up James Bedford. He needed to be transferred from one tank, which he was put in in 1967, to a better facility, and they had to briefly bring him out of the tank and put him into another one. And I haven't shown you a picture here because it's rather gruesome. He doesn't look quite the same as what he did when he went in. The chest split open, the skin has come off. There's a whole lot of damage that's occurred even at that very low temperature. The chances of that body, even if there were no damage of coming up, would be extremely, extremely low to virtue. Well, essentially from my perspective, it would be zero. And I think uh, this is a quote from one of the professors uh, also saying, Ken Story says, a biochemist at Canada's Carleton University says, Cryonics practitioners freeze bodies to slowly uh, all the cells that, uh, uh, from lack of oxygen, etc., before they freeze. If cells cannot withstand the temperatures at which they are frozen, then revival, revival will be nearly impossible. In fact, it's not just that the cells won't be able to stand the temperature, it's that those cells themselves will be significantly damaged, A, because of the fact that they did die, and there's lots of stuff that happens immediately after you die when oxygen is no longer there but then the fact that you've also got damage that's occurring once that's happened. A false hope, if you've got a facility which is freezing these people, good chance you'll make some money out of it. But I don't know that this is where I would put my hope, nor for any of the others. And I just, uh, I like this one, I intend to live forever or die trying, Groucho Marx. And that's pretty much what people's attitude is, I think towards death because it's going to happen to all of us and yet nobody really knows how to solve the problem. And yet there are literally hundreds of millions of dollars going into research to try and improve the way science teaches it. Lots of anti-aging pills, lots of anti-aging remedies, you can go and pull some out. Some of those there actually refer to some of our research work. But none of it is going to keep you living forever. There's a lot of stuff that we can do that actually help you live better and that's part of what we want to do even in terms of our health message, our understanding of health and being able to improve the way, in fact, we can enjoy life. But helping us live forever or making us live forever, impossible. Value of the global anti-aging market is in around about the 59 billion mark. We can make a lot of money out of it. But unfortunately, it doesn't work. Let me explain a little bit about what ageing actually is. We know we get these accumulated damage into the tissue. And if we have a look at it, we've got our body, which is made up of organs like heart, liver, lung, tissue, etc. Tissues, then the cells, and then inside the cells, we've got things like DNA. 
If you damage the DNA, then unfortunately, you potentially, particularly with the stem cells that are making the next generation of cells, incidentally, you know that the bodies are turning over cells all the time, is that correct? We're turning over cells all the time. How long do your skin cells last for? About a month. Cells within your cheeks, about seven days. Cells within your gut, around about two days. And just depending on which, uh, which part of the body it is, but the cells are turning over all the time. So what we are today is not the same as what we'll be tomorrow. So we're actually making ourselves all the time. And in fact, every, and it's argued backwards and forwards, but probably every, certainly after 15 years, that you're essentially a completely new person. And apart from my wife, most people look different after 15 years. However, and the problem is that unfortunately it's not usually as good as you did 15 years ago, but your cells are turning over all the time. Why do we age? Because the generation that we have now, the next generation of cells that replace the cells that we've got, will be slightly more damaged. Is that correct? They accumulate a little bit more damage. If we want to age our skin faster, what do we do? Go out into the sun. If we want to age our brains faster, what do we do? If this were a typical public audience, they would tell me, drink alcohol. And it would be the same sort of thing if I were doing that with the liver. They would say, yes, we could do that. Now, there are other ways of doing it, but they're particularly good ways of doing them. So you can age the tissue, you can age yourself faster, which means you can also slow it down, potentially. But it's that accumulation of damage within the DNA, particularly of the generation of cells that come afterwards. And there are a number of ways in which you can damage that, but free radicals is one of the major ones. And you can get free radicals coming from things like uh, just even the energy that the body needs, just even taking in oxygen is the reason why you breathe. That can actually generate lots of free radicals. Then you can take other things, you can metabolizing toxins, even drugs that you might be taking, even drugs that are just over the counter, prescription drugs. They will produce often when they're metabolized a lot of uh, free radicals. When the immune system's switched on, you produce lots of free radicals. And then you've got lots of cell debris which is generated within the cell itself, just as part of its normal metabolism, which you've got to get rid of. And then, of course, we talked about ultraviolet light, ionizing radiation like x-rays. You know, it's some people really like to get a lot of tests done by the doctor and they'll often go in and say, well, look, I had an X-ray today, having a CT scan in a week or so. Or whatever. Actually, the body does, gets a lot of damage when you have X-rays done and so you don't want to have too much. In fact, even flying, though we don't fly so much anymore, but when you're flying up in an aeroplane, it's about the same as getting an X-ray as you're heading across to particularly the long-haul flights, whether you're going to the US or, uh, uh, or to Europe. Uh, and, yes, even some of the chemicals that we take in. But there's a lot of things that can damage it. We have a thing called antioxidants, which can hopefully improve that. Lots of fruit and veggies give you lots of good antioxidants in there as well. And I don't know that I'll mention... Has anybody heard of the idea of telomeres? Yes, OK, Lynn knows, but not too many other people heard of telomeres. Um, an Australian by the name of Professor uh, Blackburn from uh, Melbourne, Weihai Institute, she was given the Nobel Prize for discovering or working out what telomeres actually do. But they sit on the end of your, your genetic material, which is all packaged up into chromosomes. They sit on the end. And every time the cell divides, you know how the cells are dividing, making the next generation, the next generation, the next generation. Every time they divide, a little bit is snipped off the telomere. And if you've got free radicals happening, it snips off faster. 
or if you've got more damage, the snail snips up faster. Once they get too short, the cells stop dividing and they go into what's called a senescent state. That's what happens as you get older, you get more and more senescent cells, which then don't actually produce, they can't multiply anymore, you can't repair things as efficiently, they don't work quite as well. So telomeres are particularly important. Okay, and I'll just leave that. Increased free radical attack shortens telomeres. And they get too short, they stop dividing and that's part of ageing. So, the key points here are free radicals can produce cumulative tissue damage, particularly to the DNA, and the faster the rate of DNA damage, the faster the ageing. Does that make sense? Not just free radicals, other things can do it, but they're a major one. Faster the rate of damage, faster the rate of ageing. So if we're looking to stop ageing, what would we have to do? To stop it, we'd have to prevent all damage to cells, is that possible? I don't think we can, but there's one other hope. If we can't stop all of the damage to cell, then there's another thing we could do. We could perfectly repair everything. How's that? That's possible. The body is actually very good at repairing things, but unfortunately it's not 100%. And so unfortunately you would still collect would end up with damage. So there's a number of ways in which science is looking at this, and there's no exam on this one, so you don't have to really worry too much. But one of the ones they want to do, what about stem cells? Can't you just give people stem cells, grow new organs? There are part of that potentially that you could do, but unfortunately you couldn't do the whole body. And certainly you couldn't do some important organs like the brain. And so you could reduce DNA damage, prevent the telomere shortening, we might even be able to lengthen it. There's a whole bunch of different things there which we're not going to go into. But unfortunately, none of them, and this is the part that we work on down here, uh, affecting some of the uh, DNA repair and epigenetic signaling, but there are some things you can do, but you couldn't do it all perfectly. Whatever the method, it would have to be 100% effective in every organ of the body, and unfortunately, that's beyond. And I've put beyond our current ability, and most people will go, well, look, maybe we will get there in 300 years' time. I can't see it at all. I don't think we will. But... At least for now, we can say that there is no credible means in science to allow humans to live indefinitely. If people are putting their hope in science, it is a false hope. Certainly for the age in which we live, and I would argue very strongly, certainly for hundreds, if not millennia, to come. This is a fellow, his name is FM2010. He changed his name. He was born Feridun M. S. Fandiri, but changed his name to reflect his goal of living to be 100. So 2030 would have been his 100th birthday. So he was fully committed. He's fully committed to the idea that you can live forever, and he would be 100 or 100 by 2030. Unfortunately, and he's not an isolated case, but unfortunately, he, well, he predicted that by 2030 we'll be ageless and everyone will have an excellent chance to live forever by 2030. He says it's a dream and a goal. Sadly, he died in 2000 at the age of 69 from pancreatic cancer. I mean, it's a tragedy, but it really is just... People can... 
you can believe whatever you like, but it actually doesn't change reality. And unfortunately, we have a society which is shifting very much towards whatever you believe must be true. And unfortunately, we have a lot of uh, alternative realities that you can immerse yourself in that allows you to begin to think that. But the reality actually is still there, whether you believe it or not. You could believe that you could live to 30. You could believe that science is going to be able to solve the problem. You can have people like me standing up and going, no, it's not going to happen. And everything that I know suggests very strongly that that's not going to happen. But people may still believe it. But the sad thing is that the truth will still happen. So if there's no hope in keeping the body living forever, is there hope in anything else? Or are we all doomed? Previous generations would say damned to eternal oblivion. Now again, I don't want to be too morbid on this point. When I was, uh, we were living in the Northern Rivers at the time when I was about four, and I remember going along to uh, a series which my parents went along to. I don't know whether some of you remember it. Dead Men Do Tell Tales. Do you remember that? It was an evangelistic series. And uh, the, whoever it was, I think it was Pastor Rose or something like that, but he was talking about uh, um, eternal death. And as a little kid, I was trying to work out what this thing, eternal death. Now, I knew what it was conceptually, but I was trying to get it. What does being eternal dead actually mean? Well, it means that you wouldn't exist ever again. It means that you would never have a conscious thought ever again. And people go, well, if I'm dead, I won't know. Well, that's true, but because I'm alive, I know that that's where I'm going, and that's actually not a good place because you no longer take part in anything, as the Bible talks about, under the sun. But that, without some miraculous intervention, is actually where we are all headed for. So here's a bit of a thought. Keeping the organism, that is this bit, alive forever, is most likely not possible and may not in fact be the key to living forever. Have you ever thought that? Because in fact I'm not the same today as I am tomorrow because there are cells that change and turn over and even in the central nervous system, the physical elements that make up a person are always changing, they're always being renewed. Only a person's character or their personality continues in spite of the constant turnover of the physical parts. None of us actually get that. I have a colleague who's uh, studying a higher degree in neuropsychology and we have many of these discussions in relation to what actually is consciousness and what is the current foundation for consciousness and that type of thing. Nobody knows. But what we do know is that in spite of our turning over, despite of our growing older, that we have this thing called consciousness, in spite of our cells turning over, we are still there. Now it's not separate to the body, we're not talking about a ethereal soul. It is part of the body, or the body is dependent, or it is dependent on the body. But it is also something which is unique in relation to the rest of the body. So maybe we should focus here on the character to find the genuine solution to immortality. So it's our character. And I would suggest that the Bible is the thing that actually tells us very clearly that that's where our focus should be. Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, self-centeredness, will from the flesh reap corruption. That is death and eternal death. But the one who sows to the Spirit 
That is selflessness. That's where Christ teaches. Will from the Spirit inherit eternal life. Wow. So there really is hope beyond the grave. There is. But it is actually sowing to the Spirit, to the God, to our selflessness. Jesus makes the comment in John 15, 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he will testify of me. In Hebrews 2, 14, 15, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same, that through his death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver him, or deliver them, who through fear of death were all their lives subject to bondage. It is through Christ that we are delivered from that bondage to fear of death. Death is the destiny of every man. There is no hope. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Does that make sense? I know particularly as Seventh-day Adventists, we can often, and I've had uh, Christian friends of mine actually accuse us of this, that we get so focused on prophecy, and prophecy is important. It's a very important message. It orients us to where we are in history and lets people know, lets us know, how fervent we should be and particularly even potentially what uh, uh, some of the techniques we should be using to get the good news out. But that's actually not the good news. Prophecy is not the good news. The Three Angels' message actually does give the good news because the good news is that we have hope beyond the grave. As Christ said, for God so loved the world that he gave the only begotten Son, gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's a character change. That's a choice. It is only those who believe in Christ that have a hope beyond the grave. Now, I don't know, and I won't mention some religions, but there are some popular religious philosophies out there that tell you, well, you just love everybody, and in the end, we're actually all going to become one with the ether. Well, it's true. You will become selfless. I mean, you'll become personless. You will no longer know that you are one with the universe because, in fact, you will be just, in fact, the dust under the feet of the saints, um, if that is being part of the universe. But when you are in those states, that is not a conscious personal state. Even what is being offered by some of those religious or, or some of those philosophies, they wouldn't claim necessarily religious. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I leave it to you that this is actually our only hope. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you so much that you have seen through the portals of the tomb we know that you have the solution to eternal death, and that is the hope that we have in you. Father, help us to be able to know it, to accept it, and to be able to share it with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.
This message was made available by the Stanmore Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit stanmoresdachurch.net. Fletcher with Teach Us to Number Our Days. Coming up next, the preacher's daughters will sing Blessed Assurance, It Is Well. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. 
tip lady who loves to help make your life more simple. I have a question for you. Are you playing small? Do you have ideas that you'd like to see grow into something real? But you know you're scared, scared to take action. What are you scared of? Perhaps you're scared to speak to encourage people. Hmm, I am. Maybe you'd think you don't look good enough. My dad used to say, my face, I don't mind it. You see, I'm behind it. It's the fella out front gets the jar. Well, is this really the fear that's stopping us from sharing ideas? No way, it isn't. Our biggest fear, wait for it, is one word. I wonder if you can guess it. Our biggest fear is judgment. Oh, yes, it is. There it is, judgment. What if your brother or your uncle or your big sister or your boss or your friend, see you do it. They might laugh, they might ridicule, they might criticise. They might say, huh, what's she up to now? She's just a nobody, who's going to listen to her? What we're really scared of in implementing an idea is how other people judge us, that's it. So my first tip for today is a simple one and here it is. If you think you have an idea worth sharing, forget yourself. Oh yes indeed, forget yourself and bless others. That's the great purpose of life, isn't it? To be a blessing. I've been thinking about how Dad helped me to learn to forget myself at one point in my life. I played a lot of piano. I loved playing and I sat a lot of exams. And I'd come up to an exam and until I was about 15 I'd be scared stiff. I'd go into the exam and I'd be frightened to face the examiner as though they were some nasty old ogre and I'd simply be terrified and I'd whine to Dad, Dad, I'm so scared. I don't want to go to this exam. I'm not ready. I don't know enough. And blah, 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 blah. One day, when I was about 16, Dad said to me, Listen, Marilyn, stop it. You've done your practice. You know your music. You have only one job to do today. I said, Dad, what's that? He said, you walk into that exam room with your head held high. Greet the examiner with a smile and all you have to do after that is make them happy listening to your music. Bless them and make them happy. And you know what? It worked. I realised then I was thinking all about me and worrying about their judgement of me and I wasn't even thinking about how to make their day happy. What a thought. Make an examiner's day happy? Wow, my job was to make them love my music, make them happy that they are an examiner. So, if you've got ideas to share, then the key is to get out of your own way, stop thinking about yourself and worrying about how you're going to be judged. Forget yourself and share those ideas. It's not up to us to worry about how our ideas will be received. Stop thinking about you and start to think about how your ideas might bless somebody else. Remember my two tips? What are they? Tip number one. If you think you have an idea worth sharing, what do you do? Two words. Forget yourself. Tip number two. Bless others with your ideas. If you will practice these tips, a lot of unnecessary fears and troubles will simply cease to exist. They'll evaporate. 
and your life and ideas will be a blessing to others. That's it today from the two-tip lady who loves to share ideas to help make your life more simple. Our series You're Not Alone, in which Alan Sonter, for many years a missionary educator in the islands of the South Pacific, tells stories that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. This episode is entitled God Sent a Taxi and Out of the Jungle. It was another wet morning in Apia, capital of Western Samoa. Not that a wet morning is unusual in that part of the world where it seems there are just two seasons, wet and wetter. I'd been trying for a couple of days to make an appointment with the head of the Western Samoa campus of the University of the South Pacific. The campus was situated at Alafua, about six kilometres from where I was staying near Apia. I'd been told by the principal secretary that she would phone and let me know when he could see me, but had heard nothing from her. It was about quarter to nine on that wet morning when the phone rang. I picked up the receiver and heard the voice of the secretary. After a brief introduction, she said, Dr. Went can see you in his office at nine o'clock. I'm sorry for the short notice, but I've only just managed to arrange a time. Can you make it by nine? I thought quickly. If I wanted to see Dr. Wend during this visit to Samora, it would have to be now, as I was scheduled to leave Samora within a day or so. Thank you for your help, I replied. I'll try to make it. As I put down the receiver, I wondered what might be the best way to get transport at such short notice. A quick call to the taxi company confirmed what I had feared. Because of the rain, Everybody wanted taxis, so there were none immediately available. As usual, I turned to God for a solution to the problem. Lord, I prayed, you know the situation and you can do anything. If you want me to meet this man, would you please make it possible for me to be there by nine o'clock? I felt impressed to put on my raincoat, go out to the road and start walking toward Alafua. I'd walked perhaps 50 metres when a large American car, I think it was a Chevy, pulled up beside me. The window rolled down and a woman called, Would you like a lift to town? She was a businesswoman whom I had met briefly and she was obviously driving from her home to her place of business in downtown Apia, near the waterfront. Thank you for your offer, I responded. It's very kind of you. But I'm not going downtown. I'm headed for the university campus at Alafua. Oh, that's all right, answered the helpful lady. I can take you to Alafua. I'm not in a hurry to get to the office this morning. Are you sure it's no problem, I asked. And she assured me that she was happy to help. I appreciate that very much, 
as I have an appointment with Dr. Wynn at nine o'clock. Within a few moments, I was sitting in comfort, well, actually in some luxury, as the big car glided smoothly over the uneven surface of the road. I tried to get a taxi, I began, but with the rain, there were no cars available at short notice. I didn't know how I would get to Alafua. It's really good of you to take me. My benefactor seemed happy to continue the conversation. As you know, she said, when you come down the hill from my home, you reach that intersection back there and you can either go straight down to the waterfront or you can come this way and turn down to the waterfront further along. I usually take the direct road, but somehow this morning I just felt impressed to turn at the intersection and come this way. I believe I know why you were impressed to come this way, I ventured. At about the time you were coming down the hill, I was asking God to help me to get to Alafua. I'm surely grateful that you followed that impression, and the kind lady nodded her agreement. So I arrived on time for my appointment because God sent a taxi, and it was free and better than any of the ones that charged fares. Our second story happened on the island of Savai'i, the largest and most westerly of the Samoan Islands. It was back in the 1960s when roads in some parts of the island were little more than a set of wheel tracks through the jungle, with tall trees and vines almost meeting overhead. There was such an area in the northwest where the road went through thick jungle for quite a few miles without passing through any villages. My work took me around the island by Land Rover every month or so, and on one occasion I was with a friend out in the jungle in one of the most remote parts of the island, when without warning, the Land Rover engine suddenly died. It didn't cough or splutter, it just stopped dead. Now I'm not a mechanic by trade, but I've had a bit to do with engines over the years, and I figured that a sudden stop like that sounded more like an electrical problem than a fuel problem. The Land Rover was old and tired, and a succession of troubles had dogged it over the preceding months. It didn't belong to me, but to a Samoan colleague who used it most of the time. He was happy for me to keep it going for him in return for my using it from time to time. Its most serious trouble had been a fire that burned out the wiring system in the engine compartment. A leaking fuel line connected to the carburetor dripped petrol down near the end of the electrical generator where the sparks from the commutator were just waiting to set the petrol alight. I had seen the danger and asked the owner not to use the vehicle until I had time to fix the leak, but he didn't realise the danger, so he took a friend on a visit to another village. Unfortunately for both of them, the inevitable happened, and as they were driving along, the driver was shocked to see flames coming out of holes in the dashboard. The shock completely unnerved him, so he let the Land Rover slow down a little and then opened the door and jumped out, leaving the vehicle to its own devices. Fortunately, his passenger had the presence of mind to reach over and switch off the engine before he too jumped to safety. The Land Rover careered off the road into a ditch and came to rest with smoke flames billowing out of the engine compartment. Fortunately, nothing exploded and the passenger managed to put out the fire, but not before everything burnable around the engine had been consumed.
It was some time before the complete rewire and other repairs made the vehicle usable again. And now we were out in the middle of nowhere with a dead engine. I have a kind of motto developed over many experiences with the Lord that says, what someone else can make, the Lord and I can fix. I'm sure that motto is not appropriate for everything man makes, but it did apply remarkably often to old-type vehicles before the days of computer-controlled systems. So I prayed, Lord, you know what's wrong with this engine. Please show me what the problem is. Immediately, God seemed to say to me, start by opening the distributor. So I unclipped the distributor cap and moved it aside. Then God said, look at the cam on the center shaft and the small heel on the end of the spring that rides on the cam and is pushed in and out as the cam turns. It is this movement of the heel that creates the spark in the spark plugs to burn the petrol. I was surprised to see that the heel was not tied up against the cam, but had stayed out where the highest point of the cam had pushed it. The spring had lost its tension, so it did not keep the heel against the cam. I quickly removed the spring and bent it to increase its pressure against the cam. Then replaced it and the distributor cap and the engine sprang to life with the first press of the starter button. I thanked God for showing me so quickly what the trouble was, as it could have taken a long time to find such an unusual problem. Because of God's help, we were on our way out of the jungle in just a few minutes. It's true, my friend. Whoever or wherever you are right now, you're not alone. God is just a prayer away, and he is waiting for us to realize our need of him and call to him for help. You've been listening to our series, You're Not Alone. Stories told by Alan Sonter that help us to know that God is always watching over us, wherever we are. If you have any comments or questions, send an email to radio at 3avianaustralia.org.au or give us a call within Australia on 02 4973 3456. May God bless you. And remember, you are not alone. You have been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.